Hi, strangers, and welcome back to Strange State. I'm your host, Liz Higgins, and your support for this podcast has been crazy so far. I want to do a couple of quick shout-outs. Thank you to Jacqueline for giving us a shout-out on Instagram and saying she loved the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate you. And shout-out to Hunter for being our very first Patreon in the Beat Cop tier. And Tasia for also donating to the podcast as well and writing a review on Apple Podcast. This means so much to me. I thought five people were going to listen to this podcast, and it has been so much more than that. We have listeners in Ireland. We have listeners in uh, California, in South Carolina, in Tennessee, Virginia, all these different places, in Hawaii even. And I'm so excited that this has gotten such a high reach and that you guys are liking what I'm doing so far. So I'm really excited about that. We are definitely well on our way to getting some new sound equipment, which is going to be flipping awesome. And also, some fun news, the website is up, strangestatepod.wordpress.com. The link is also on our Instagram account, which is strangestatepod on Instagram. Uh, It's so awesome. It took me forever (laughs) to do, but I love doing it, and I'm really excited that I finally got that out there. It is going to have photos for each episode, the sources that I use for each episode, because I do do... I do a lot of extensive research for each one and sometimes some additional information and some additional videos that I find like on YouTube that I think is interesting. But obviously I don't want to put it in the podcast because that would take up a lot of your precious listening time, but things that I think have good information in them and are fun to listen to. So with all of that out of the way, let's hop right into this week's case. This story took place in Durham, North Carolina, also known as Bull City. Durham is part of the Triangle, which also includes cities Chapel Hill and Raleigh, North Carolina. Raleigh being the capital of North Carolina, obviously. The city has a rich history that includes civil rights sit-ins and even visits from Martin Luther King Jr. himself. We just passed Martin Luther King Jr. Day, so I really wanted to give that shout out. Uh, A town that was built off the backs of the tobacco industry also includes Duke University, known as one of the top schools in the country and one half of the infamous rivalry between the Duke Blue Devils and the Chapel Hill Tar Heels. If you live in North Carolina for any amount of time, you know that there's either a light blue or a dark blue side and you have to choose one in an effort to stay impartial. I'm not going to say which one I pull for. We're just going to leave it at that. With such a large city, though, comes its dangers. Uh, According to NeighborhoodScout.com, the ratio of violent crime in Durham per 1,000 residents is 7.21. And that doesn't sound like a lot. So for every 1,000 people, there are seven people that violent crime happens to. But I want you to compare it to the 3.78 per 1,000 that the state of North Carolina holds right now as a whole. So that's really important for you to look at it that way and understand that Durham does have a really high crime rate. Also, according to NeighborhoodScout.com, Durham has one of the highest crime rates in the country 
compared to other cities of its same size. Again, not necessarily the highest crime rate in the country total, but with its same city, same population, and same demographics, it does have a really high crime rate. I took these next quotes from an article written in IndieWeek.com, and it was written in July of 2019, but I thought it really spoke to the crime in Durham, North Carolina. And the first one is from City Council member Jillian Johnson. She points out that most of the victims and alleged perpetrators appear to know each other. There's another more troubling commonality. More than 90% of the victims are black, as are most of the suspects charged in their death. The government that runs the Durham City government equates the high crime rate to history of poverty in the area, and this is also a quote from the same article. Durham County Commissioner Wendy Jacobs says the city and county need to break cycles of systematic black poverty that trace back through slavery and segregation. While 8% of white children in Durham grow up impoverished, she notes, 36% of African American and 37% of Hispanic children do. I think that is an interesting fact and an interesting quote considering the history of Durham. It did start as a tobacco town and what ran the tobacco farms? Slavery, unfortunately. It's a dark history and a dark past that I think the South is still trying mm, some of us in the South are still trying to overcome, but it is a fact, and it is a history that happened, and so what we're finding is that people in Durham are still living at that poverty level. The city is, however, trying to make positive changes in the area and are working diligently to change, change the lives of people that so often get looked over in those minorities, in that 37% of Hispanic children and 36% of African American children. These people are looked over and they're growing up poor and so they're not able to afford a lot of the other things that people can that just make lives easier. So their lives are harder and a lot of them term, turn to crime in order to combat that. Okay, so I told you a little bit of what was going on in Durham and a little bit of the history so that we can maybe understand a little bit better how something like what I'm about to tell you could happen in such a beautiful, history-rich city. So, a little more history. The Black Hebrew Israelites is a religious sect that some may consider a violent hate group. AntiDefamationLeague.org says the group's mission is to spread the Black Hebrew Israelite ideology and to educate Black individuals of their true place in society. They are committed to spreading the ideology globally and recruiting as many Black individuals as possible. They rely heavily on social media to promote their beliefs, as well as hosting public activities such as marches and Bible readings. They reject Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, specifically calling Jews, quoted, the bastards that funded the slave trade. They blame Jews and other ethnicities for all social ills plaguing black individuals and claim that acceptance of this ideology and God will free black people. Further, they assert that Jews and white people worship the devil and white people will become their slaves in heaven. So obviously... This sounds like a very controversial group in the United States where 
I like to believe that most people want equality across the board and their beliefs are fanatical in a sense. So I just want to keep that history in mind. They are a controversial group that has many offshoots across the nation that tweak the beliefs to better fit their agenda. Peter Moses Jr. had been in and out of the mental health system since the age of 10. He had tried to commit suicide at such a young age, and after being in and out of the system, he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and depression and was considered stable while he remained on his medication. He was also a follower of the Black Hebrew Israelites in his older years. He took part of the practice of polygamy, which is something that the Black Hebrew Israelites do condone and do encourage. They also forbid the use of birth control. In his practice of polygamy, he took nine wives into his home, including Vanya Sisk, who was living in Colorado when she met Moses, where Moses quickly swept her up in his beliefs, believing that she belonged to him and the role for women was to be subservient to him. When they moved to Durham, North Carolina, taking her son, Jaden Higginbotham, from a different relationship with them, her family grew very concerned. And when Vanya moved and then cut contact with them, their concern worsened. They did not necessarily like Peter Moses Jr. and didn't agree with the move and didn't agree with their relationship. Quickly after moving, Moses and Vanya, who also do not believe in the use of birth control, had three children together. The other wives in the household would take turns sharing Moses' bed, and every dollar they made by working was to be given to him so that he could stay at home to develop his doctrine. They were also required to call him Lord. I think it is very important to remember and reiterate he would be considered an offshoot of the black Hebrew Israelites, um, where he's kind of molding this religion into something that fits his agenda a little better. I just want to keep that in mind. I also want to say quickly, let's take a second before we get into the nitty gritty of this case, and we're going to listen to a word from our sponsors really quick, and we'll be right back. Okay, so now that you survived that, we're going to hop right back into our case where we left off. Thank you guys for sticking around. One of the other wives, Antoinetta McCoy, quickly grew attached to little Jaden and claimed him as her own. Not being able to have children herself, she took great care to homeschool the child and make sure all of his needs were attended. Sweet little Jaden was unfortunately picked out by Moses, who was very suspicious of him. He believed that this sweet four-year-old boy was gay due to his father abandoning him and Moses's hypothesis that Jaden's father was gay. Uh, the black Hebrew Israelites condemn homosexuality with fervor. It is something that they wholeheartedly 100% disagree with, and that's a huge factor in this case. In October of 2010, Moses Moses's <laughs> frustration came to a head when he found out that the young boy had actually touched another boy 
one of Moses's biological sons on the butt. I just want to say that nothing, no article I read said that this was sexual in any way. He was four years old. It seemed that it was just innocent children playing with each other. Maybe he just brushed past him and didn't even mean to, but it was the catalyst in Moses's brain that proved that the child was indeed gay and proved the child's gayness, in air quotes. Uh, Moses grew furious and told Vanya, his mother, that something had to be done. He could not live with this under his roof. It is also noted that out of all of the children in the household, Jadon was the only one that was not the biological child of Moses. So this, I also think, played a factor in the crimes. He had all of the women bring devices into the garage to play prayers in Hebrew, different speakers and computers to provide um, some sort of a surround sound, and he played them at a very high volume. He then brought four-year-old Jaden into the garage and shot him in the back of the head while reciting these prayers to him, execution style. The women then cleaned up and hid little Jaden's body in a room in the house until the smell started to bother Moses, and then he was removed from the home. Antoinetta was devastated by the death of Jaden, and her faith in Moses was shaken after all she had seen him do. It was said that the other children in the household were afraid of him, and she knew that Moses was angry that she could not give him children. In December of 2010, she did try to escape and ran from the house to a neighbor's home and asked to borrow their cell phone to make contact with her mother, who lived in Washington, D.C., where Antoinetta was from. Unfortunately, the neighbor thought that Antoinetta was mentally disturbed and that she had escaped from a group home, and so even though it was suspicious and she was in distress, they did not call the police. This was a big mistake, obviously. Another one of the wives stormed out of the house and found McCoy and beat her to the ground in this neighbor's front yard and dragged her back to the house while beating her the entire time. Whether someone's in a group home, a mental care facility, or any facility where this person is deemed unstable, air quotes again, and you see someone else beating them, please call the police. I'm obviously not blaming this neighbor. The neighbor had no idea. We all want to see the goodness in people. But there's no excuse ever for the beating of someone else that seems in distress like that. Obviously, something a little suspicious was going on. We possibly could have saved a life if that neighbor would have called 911. Hours later, while the women played the same prayers that Jaden listened to in Hebrew in the bathroom of the home, Vanya herself shot McCoy, killing her. 
Days after, while keeping her body in the house, Moses threw a party and showed off her body to the friends and family who came to this party, only removing her body days later when it started to smell and it started to again offend him. I guess that these bodies were smelling as they decayed in his home after he murdered them systematically. It's fine, though. In February of 2011, so only a couple months later, a young woman successfully escaped Moses and his three other wives and ran to the police telling them everything. When they went to check the residence and check out her story, the police unfortunately found nothing out of the ordinary and left only returning when a search of McCoy's name came up with a missing persons case attached to it. And then they decided they really needed to go and investigate further. Upon arriving at the home, the women tried to hide Moses in a bathroom, and Vanya even denied that she had a son named Jaden, which is insane. I understand that she was trying to protect Moses, but this is her own flesh and blood child. And how cold and heartless do you have to be to even deny your son. It was also said that later in a police interview, she changed her story again and said that she had given Jaden to a different caregiver who she could barely remember the name of, didn't know where they were going. Again, red flags everywhere. That's not okay. They did do a quick search of government records and found what little paperwork they had on sweet Jaden because he was homeschooled. He didn't see doctors regularly because of Moses's beliefs. My dog Luna groaning in the background. Even she thinks this is stupid, but here we are. <laughs> and when two plumbers actually were called to the former home of Moses's mother later on that year because of an awful smell was emanating from the backyard and the homeowners thought that there was like a sewage issue. These two plumbers found the two bodies of Antoinette McCoy and sweet Jaden Higginbotham in the backyard wrapped in plastic. Their fates were instantly sealed when they found those bodies and unfortunately for Peter Moses, he had fingerprints on the plastic that the bodies were wrapped in because he disposed of them. They were also buried in the backyard behind Moses's mother's former home. Also very interesting. Lots of things pointed to them in this way. Peter Moses pled guilty to two counts of first-degree murder, agreeing to testify against the others involved. And while this is excellent, he wanted to testify to everyone, we do know from a previous case that if you plead guilty in the state of North Carolina, it does take the death penalty off the table. And I think that that was his ultimate goal. I believe that Peter Moses was only out for self-preservation and didn't necessarily care that he was throwing these other people under the bus as long as he did not get the death penalty. He did receive two consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. 
So hope is he will spend the rest of his life in prison where he can get some of the mental help that he needs and maybe stay on some of that medication. LaRonda Renee Smith, she was one of the other wives who helped in the murder of both people, and she was sentenced to 23 to 30 years in prison for charges of second-degree murder, accessory after the fact, first-degree kidnapping, and conspiracy to commit murder. <laughs> she was the only one that, in all the articles I read, seemed genuinely remorseful, and unfortunately, the family members of the two individuals that passed away were not in court or her lawyer and the judge believed that she would have profusely apologized to them and really shown her remorse. Maybe that would have offered some closure to them. We're not sure, but I think that that does speak to her character. Maybe the power of Moses to control these women. Vanya Sisk pleaded guilty to second-degree murder, first-degree kidnapping, and conspiracy to commit murder, receiving around 30 years in prison. She also pled guilty, so she could not receive the death penalty, even though she systematically killed her own child and then killed the one woman who cared for him besides herself. Obviously using that term loosely for herself, but... I think that she was probably a little more jealous of Antoinette McCoy in the sense that she did have such a close relationship with her own son. And so I think that Vanya's part in the murder might have been a little bit different than the other women who were a little more brainwashed. But again, that's all my own ideas. So I can't really attest to that. So I know that this was a heavy one, and I want to thank you for sticking it out. Remember to find Strange State on Instagram at Strange State Pod, and now on our new website at strangestatepod.wordpress.com. Go check out our Patreon. We have three different tiers with benefits for each tier. You'll get exclusive access to episodes. You'll get bonus episodes every week. I'm even going to be doing some episodes on some other things I find interesting, such as cults, um, conspiracy theories, ghost stories, different things that people like in the true crime bracket as well, but don't necessarily fit into this specific podcast. I'm posting a bonus episode on there this week that I know you guys are going to enjoy thoroughly. Please reach out to me in an email if you have any ideas or anything like that. The email is strangestatepod at gmail.com. Subscribe wherever you listen and rate and review on Apple Podcast. It would be awesome. And as always, keep it real, strangers. <laughs>